Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Well, welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown, joined in the Asia Tech Podcast virtual studio today by David Jew, the CEO and founder of Pomelo Fashion, based in Bangkok today. David, welcome to the show. Hi, glad to be here. It's good to have you here. Now, I notice you're, you're educated in Amherst, but where, where are you originally from? Where are you born? Yeah, so I was born in Germany. Right. Uh, and I was born in, in uh, Dortmund. Uh-huh. Uh, my, my, my parents were studying at the time, and then I grew up in the States and uh, also in South Korea for a while. So. Right. That's an interesting mix. So you speak German, English, and Korean? I do, yeah. Thai? Thai, uh, I'm Getting working there. on it. I've got some <laughs> flashcards, you know, like I've got, I've got some, some tutoring set up. But it's, um, yeah, you know, the great thing about Bangkok is uh, – a lot of really talented people, you know, a lot of people speak English. So I've, yeah. I've been a bit spoiled uh, just, just being around a lot of smart people who speak English a lot better yeah. than I speak Thai. That's, so. t- that's tough, isn't it? I mean, I've lived all over. I've lived in Spain. I've lived in Japan. And I think if you're surrounded by people who speak English, it, it, it makes it a bit harder, doesn't it? Because you have to, you know, you try and speak to them in their language and then they break out in English and you're like, oh, I'll give up. Yeah. Still no, it's still no excuse, but, yeah, but yeah, right. that's what I like to say too. So. Exactly. We're always learning. So let's talk a little bit about Pomelo Fashion. Let's talk about where that came from. What, what exactly is it? And also maybe we could talk a little bit about what you're doing differently to fashion and e-commerce. Start at the beginning. What's Pomelo Fashion about? Yeah, absolutely. So Pomelo is a digitally native, vertically integrated brand. Um, I think that's a pretty popular term now in... Silicon Valley in the States, uh, really around the world, and uh, DNVB for short. And we are specifically focused on um, the fast fashion sector. So what we're really trying to do is we're trying to disrupt the Zara's, the H&M's, the Mangos of the world um, by taking a digital first approach and, uh, you know, kind of going very deep into the supply chain. So mm. kind of owning everything from the design material sourcing all the way through to the um, uh, marketing and, and, the, and then the customer side. So Right. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. I want to know a little bit about this DNVB, Digital Native Vertically Integrated Brand. Is that what you call it? Yep. All right. That's okay. Right. Well, let's go into that in a minute. But you, you said, I mean, obviously, you've thrown your hat in the ring by saying you want to take on the Zara's and the H&M's of this world. I mean, I think, you know, Zara, phenomenal growth over the last 20 years and what it's achieved. I mean, in terms of how it sort of turned out quality globally, I think, you know, how do you compete with that? Because, I mean, my sort of memory of Zara and I, I worked with them sort of as a consultancy capacity many years ago and I think one of the things that surprised me is but just how quickly they can go to the catwalk see the fashion and then have it in the store they would actually have people go to these runways and sketch out the designs and then they would have that t-shirt or that suit or that dress in the Zara stores within you know a record time so how, how do you compete with somebody like that yeah, I mean that's a great question. Zara is hands down, you know, the the probably the the leader in this space, right? They've perfected the craft of 
runway to retail and um, you know they're, they're really the best at what they do and there's a reason why you know they've been um, successful like you said for you know more than 20 years and kind of stand at, at the top of this this industry I think having said that um, just as every single industry is getting disrupted by you know all things digital fast fashion is no different right and, um, you know, when, when we think about what makes us different, it's really three things. Okay. The first one is that um, we are first and foremost um, on the web, right? That's our primary means of interacting. That's our primary means of transacting and storytelling. Um, and that makes us fundamentally different from, you know, Azar or H&M, whose DNA is brick and mortar. Mm. The second is that we are, um, you know, hands down, like if there's one thing, and this is the most important thing, is that we're focused on the customer experience first and foremost. Every single decision we make is based on what's right for the customer. And it's says, hey, we've got these incredible store managers um, on the floor. Uh, they're talking to, to the customers in store, getting feedback, and that feedback is then being sent you know, back to our headquarters in Spain. And, um, you know, using that information, we then help inform, you know, our marketing mm. and branding and product decisions, right? And they do that on a monthly basis, right? That's great, but it's still a manual process, right? Mm. Um, the difference is that we can do that, you know, um, a thousand times over, you know, while they're doing one cycle, whether it's through, you know, digital surveys, kind of the, the metadata that we're getting from the various campaigns we have, you know, the, um, the funnel information that we have on site, right? We're just, we just have so much more data that allows us to really maniacally focus on the customer experience. Mm -hmm. And that's the second point of differentiation. Um, and really the third one, um, which I think is an area where, you know, everybody's really starting to to open up to is that we have uh, a ton of data, right? And and that data drives um, intimacy. So when you walk into a Pomelo store, right, they're going to know your name. They're going to know what you bought, what you like. They're going to know who you are, right? And they're going to try to make all of that data come together to make your shopping experience even better. Mm. When was the last time you walked into Zara and somebody said, "Hey, Graham, welcome back"? Yeah, never. right. That's not that's not that that's not not going to happen. So, you know, absolutely, Zara is good at what they do when it comes to you know the fast fashion cycle and the way that they've kind of managed to build up their business. But uh, you know, we really think that these three things are what make us fundamentally different. And then the last thing, which is doesn't tie back to the digital thing, but really ties back to the fact that we're based in Bangkok is that, I don't know if you know this, not a lot of people do, though if you think about it, it makes sense, you know. Uh, today, uh, the majority of fas fashion, especially at our price point, is, is um, purchased in Asia by customers who live in Asia, right? Yeah. So China, yeah. India, Southeast Asia, North Asia. And the majority of the product is produced in Asia, hmm. right? Yet the brands are based in places like Spain, Sweden, New York City, right? So that paradigm needs to change, right? Like mm. you, you want the designers to be 
local, right? You, you know, they understand the customer much more intimately than somebody does, you know, over in, in Spain or Sweden, right? So I think that's, that's really the last component, which is, yes, we're digital, you know, and we're going to do all these things that I just mentioned, but we're closer physically in proximity, mm. right? And we consume the same media. We look at the same trends. We have the same taste. And that's why I think, uh, you know, we're going to be able to serve this emerging, you know, market uh, in a lot more uh, direct way, right? Mm. So, so yeah, I mean, and that's 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 basically why we think we're 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 well positioned to to beat beat these, you know, big incumbents at their game. Yeah. I'm surprised when I look at people like Zara. I don't want to spend too long, look, you know, going deep into them. But it's, I think it's important to set the scene, isn't it, for entrants like yourself? Is Zara's online presence has been traditionally really weak. I mean, I don't even know if you can. I mean, until very recently, you couldn't order anything online, and it was just really just a catalogue, which was amazing, really, given the size of that opportunity in that market. But I guess, like you say, it's in their DNA, isn't it? That that's how they operate. I'm just wondering why a brand like that would never have said, okay, look, we, we can see in our market there's a lot of competition coming in. You've got people like, you know, in Europe, ISOS, for example, who's oh, there's a big marketplace, primarily online. You know, why don't we go online and maybe, you know, fend off a little bit of this competition? But they really haven't done it, have they? I mean, just wondering what the sort of thought process is there for those traditional retailers are. Yeah, look, I think um, this is, um, you know, I... If there's one company that could potentially do it, I think it's Zara. So I do want to recognize the fact that they've made really tremendous strides in terms of their e-commerce and digital business in the last, you know, three to five years. So mm. I give them that. But but typically speaking, um, there is a, a a problem that traditional brands retailers face when it comes to um, the pace at which yeah. they move. You know towards e-commerce, towards digital. And maybe I can tell you a very, very short story just to make the point. Please. I was um, invited to speak at um, this company's, you know, senior management offsite. And, um, you know, at the time I was at, I had just left Lazada. And Lazada was, you know, doing tremendously well. And it's obviously, you know, a huge success and all that. So they were really interested in what I had to, what I had to say, and um, it's a it's a it's a multinational company, um, you know, publicly listed. They have tons of different brands, both retail, you know, food, hospitality, under under their their umbrella. And 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 you know, I gave my presentation. I said, look, e-commerce is going to grow really fast. You know, let's. Let's all focus on it and grow the ecosystem and we can all work together. You know, that was kind of my my presentation. And you know, during the QA, hand goes up. Re- really, you know, really smart, the team as a whole. So I'm just giving this example to make the point. But you know, he he gets up, asks a question, hey, thank you for the presentation. Um, I, I have a question, you know, I have a X, you know, X tens of million dollar budget, marketing budget. Mm. And what I'm struggling with is, um, you know, what percentage of that budget I should allocate to e-commerce, right? Mm. Uh, as of now, we've set it at around 15% because we think that over time, e-commerce will be about 15% of our business, right? What, what do you think of that approach? Mm. And then he gave a quick, quick caveat. He goes, and by the way, our e-commerce business is, is really not very profitable because we have to do the delivery on the products, we have to receive returns, 
the return rate is a lot higher. We have to have a separate e-commerce customer service center. We have to produce all this content. And frankly, you know, it's cannibalizing the offline business. So from mm. a profitability standpoint, all it's doing is it's making our margins go down, right? Mm. And, and that, you know, that line of thinking, I have heard, um, you know, over and over and over again, right? And this is what I said to him. I said, look, okay, what, you know, I was like, you're thinking about it, um, in an incorrect way. And, 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 and I think about it slightly differently. I said, look, and at that time, you know, there were a lot of different e-commerce businesses. I said, think, think about the world around us today, right? There are these businesses that are backed by venture capital companies and they have anywhere between $10 million and 200 million, you know, all the way up to billions of dollars of funding. And they have one single objective, right? And that is to destroy your business. So the question is not what percentage of my marketing budget should I shift to e-commerce? The question is how much money are you willing to spend to defend your business and stay mm. alive? Mm. Right. That's what I said, you know, and he sat down, he goes, thank you for your answer. Run into him a few months later and he goes, Dave, you know, that was, thank you so much for that. You know, we, um, we basically, you know, reorganized the entire team, right? We really focused on digital and today, E-commerce is uh, almost 30% of our transactions. Right. And uh, we are so focused on, you know, um, on, on being, you know, great in this area. And I said, that's, that's amazing. And that's, that's the other side. Some of these big companies, when they do have that shift in mindset, they can move pretty quickly, right? They've got a ton of cash, great people, a lot of experience. So, you know, you can't count them out, but but yeah, that's just a quick story yeah, no. highlighting what I think is, is at the core of the problem, yeah. Yeah, you've identified, I think you, you mentioned it when the, the, the conference delegate stood up and said, you know, asked you the question and then said, oh, by the way, it's cannibalizing our business. You know, it sort of it goes to show their sort of mindset when they look at online. It's, it's, not a, it's not a complimentary part of their business. It's taking away effectively what is the core of their business that's how they see it isn't it or that's how they've traditionally been trained and it takes somebody else to come in and think about that differently so there's a lot of learning that has to be unlearned in a way so in some ways yes but but again you know i don't want to general generalize too much i guess i have seen great leaders within some of these traditional businesses and you know they've seen their industries evolve a couple times over, right? Mm. And they know this is the latest trend that they really need to jump on top of. So I would say it's a cultural thing. There are certain yeah. companies that are naturally good at it. Others are, you know, they're very comfortable where they are. And they've mm. been very comfortable, you know, with, with, one, with one approach, right? And those are the companies that I think need to be careful and, and, and need to try to adopt new ideas. But there are tons of great companies whose business is adapting, yeah. And, um, you know, they, they've been very successful. So. Well, these were challenger brands themselves back in the day, weren't they? So exactly, they, yeah. So you can't yeah. discount them. You know, they're not sort of coming from public utilities, are they? They're people that came into markets and disrupted them. So that is a, a great point, yeah. Maybe exactly. we can start by defining the area you're in. I know you mentioned it. You say fast fashion. That's news to me. What exactly is fast fashion? Because it's obviously something you use within your own circles. But for those listeners who are not sort of fully aware of what that might be, how do you define it? So what fast fashion is, um, is, is, is basically this idea that um, we are uh, style agnostic, right? So mm. 
What we're focused on is identifying the relevant fashion trends that are uh, becoming popular um, in the markets uh, where we are present. And then really trying to put together our assortment um, based on the trends that are relevant at any given time, mm. right? So if there is a, um, you know, um, a trend around, you know, frayed denim, right? And um, you see it on social media, you see it on the runway, you see it in magazines, and, um, you know, it's starting to really pick up, then, you know, that's something that we want to be able to offer to our customers because we really feel like, um, the, this idea of mixing and matching and being able to express yourself uh, through the latest trends mm -hmm. um, is really the, the direction that, that fashion has gone in, right? No, no longer are we in the age where people just want to wear a big, big branded logo on mm -hmm. their chest, right? Or they want to have, uh, you know, like expensive bags with, you know, LV written all over it. Like, you know, that, that, that age, I think, has kind of died and it's ended. And at the very top end of the segment, it still exists. But for the most part, you know, people pick clothes on, on based on style and trend, mm. right? Brand is becoming less and less important, right? And we're, and we're 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 in the middle of that, and we're just trying to make sure that mm. you know what whatever it is that you want that you want to incorporate into your wardrobe, you can get at a good quality at an accessible price point. And, um, and, 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 and you'll, you'll be sure that, you know, Pomelo has some version of that. So. Mm. so, so why is that? I mean, it's been interesting how that's developed over the years. It's like, if, if you went back, you know, if you go way back to, you know, even, even my era being an old guy, it's like, you know, you go back to the eighties when, you know, and I suppose the late eighties, early nineties, when those sort of real designer lifestyle brands appeared like in jeans and you had like Calvin Klein you know, started hitting the high street and then you had like replay and guess, which were very, very sort of high end, expensive jeans. And then you had like people wearing the, like you mentioned that the t-shirts with the big CK on it, which would cost like 30, 40, 50 bucks. There was all of that. And then that sort of died out. And I wondered always why that was the case. And I, I kind of wondered whether that was because now, I mean, let you take the Louis Vuitton bag as an example, is that I can get that made in China for a tenth of the price and it looks pretty much like a Louis Vuitton bag. So those sort of big audacious brand statements never really sort of meant what they used to be. Back in the day, it meant you had money and a certain amount of taste. But today it means like anybody can have these brands, right? So people have sort of changed their view of what is valuable and now have sort of shifted more to, like you're saying, more to like, you know, what's sort of fashionable rather than, you know, I'll start with Gucci first or Diesel and I'll work my way back what actually works for me. So I'm just sort of curious what your taste in that, why fast fashion has emerged and why that sort of designer brands have sort of been pushed aside. Yeah, no, I, I think you kind of um, are really, you know, touching at, at what, what has happened over the last couple of decades. And I think it stems from a couple of places. The first is, um, you know, um, and I think this is really where Zara and H&M, they really came in and, and, and they started mm. to kind of take, uh, you know, they were kind of revealing the truth about the fashion industry, right? Which is, hey, yes. you know, that cool denim jacket or that, you know, T-shirt, right? Um, the same quality, the same look, um, I can bring you at a fraction of the price. And you're not really sacrificing anything other than the fact that you won't have that logo 
um, visible on on the item, mm. right? And um, so when people are coming out, you know, with these great products at really really affordable price points, you know, it's very hard to then go back to buying, you know, a fifty dollar T-shirt with CK on it that mm. looks, feels, fits, and it's probably made in the exact same factory as something that you're buying at, you know, a Zara or Mangrove or H&M, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's the first part. Now, what's happening even, you know, furthermore, what's happening now is is social media. And I think that, um, you know, there's no, there's no difference between what is, you know, the public realm and the private realm, what's, you know, um, above the line, below the line, what's the difference between PR and marketing, right? There, there is no difference anymore. So what's happening is, you know, brands like Tom's or Warby Parker, right? right? Like, or, or Everlane in the U.S., they're saying, let us tell you the story behind these products. And also, you know, we're, we're going to give you a way, um, you know, to, to make a difference through your everyday decisions around what products you want to buy, right? right? So, we're, you know, and, and, and I think that that's just really opening it up much more where, you know, your everyday decision, what T-shirt to buy becomes more than just what T-shirt am I buying, right? It, it mm. means it's a, little about, it's a little bit about what causes you support, what's important to you, your values, right? There's a sense of storytelling coming from the brand side that can only be done through social media that was not present before. So it's a lot more holistic. So you can't just put on a glossy, you know, um, ad with some models and throw it up on, you know, in the latest Vogue. And, mm-hmm. and uh, people are not going to be tricked by that anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Very interesting. I like how you describe it as well. You talk about, for example, those challenger brands coming in and really, I suppose, exposing the fashion industry for what it was and, like you mentioned, Warby Parker is a great example of a brand that's grown in recent years. You know, that whole sort of like fashion eyewear brand as well. I mean, that whole scene, like you say, I mean, a lot of it was just made in the same factory and just rebranded in a different way and marked up by significant amounts. But they sort of came in and did things a little bit differently. So I wonder about, you know, how do you position yourselves? Let's talk a little bit about your stores and, you know, what you sell so people get an understanding of pomelo do you sell your own brand goods or do you you know is it like concessions where you have like designer brands in there how does it work let's start with there by looking at what your inventory is like yeah um so so we are fully vertically integrated so we everything is pomelo brand Hmm. so we do the design we do the material sourcing we do the you know we work um on the concepting and the prototyping um and and then um and yeah, I mean, we have everything from T-shirts to, you know, summer dresses to uh, workwear to, um, uh, you know, shoes, handbags, accessories, sportswear. You know, we have thousands of different types of products, um, all created in-house by our very talented designers. Um, and, uh, yeah. Okay. So that it's all, it's all in house. Yeah. Do you, you actually have physical stores as well, and as well as a big online presence? I mean, how does that sort of break down in terms of your, you know, your business? How much is offline? How much is online? So we we started one hundred percent online, yeah. and um, you know the and and today we have um, we just have one store actually in Bangkok, 
Um, but we, um, and we've done, you know, multitudes of pop-ups and other types of, you know, omni-channel experiences in the past. And they've proven to be uh, really, really fun and, and uh, pretty successful on, you know, uh, in terms of getting getting the brand out there and, 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 and just letting folks interact with, with the product. So, you know, we're, we're kind of all in on the omni-channel mm. thesis. Um, we're opening five locations confirm locations this year uh we're actually actively working on signing more leases signing up more locations so that number will probably go up before the year ends and then next year um we're looking at you know opening another um you know multiples of that so we're, we're expanding pretty quickly but as of now we have one store okay i want to ask you about that in a minute but i just want to say to the, to the listeners i mean obviously you know, describing a little bit about the kind of fashion that you have in your stores as well. I mean, I do really like the the style that you have in your stores. It does remind me quite a lot of Zara, I've got to say, like the actual style, that very sort of simple and very, um, you know, it's not pretentious in any way, but I think it appeals to a certain type of person. I think that that is very appealing because it's not like a loud statement. It's quite toned down. I mean, obviously, you've got a lot of different colors in there, but I feel like when I look at your stock, it does remind me a little bit. So I'm not saying that in any sort of, like, hopefully not saying that in the pejorative, but it's kind of like, I think that's a compliment because I think what they do in their stores in terms of the actual stock is they do absolutely get it right. And I think you've kind of got that with your mix as well. Obviously, I'm only seeing a little bit of it. There's a lot more that goes on, but I just think so people can kind of get a handle of what kind of yeah, no, absolutely. you do sell. So yep. you can understand where you sort of fit in that market. No, we take it as a compliment, absolutely. Okay, so so we know that. I'm just understanding the actual store as well. So you do actually have a physical store and you're expanding. This is really interesting. I know you talk about omnichannel. You started 100% offline. What online. Th- we started 100% online. Sorry, that's what I meant to say. What is the drive to then set up a store? Because, you know... Or we'll get to it in a minute, but obviously people are thinking, well, you know, you're kind of like online and you're going into the space where you're trying to compete with people who have that offline presence. What is the main driver to to set up a retail store for an online e-commerce provider like yourself? Yeah, look, I think the, the, the main thing is, right, when it comes to fashion, fit is really, really important. And um, even when I'm buying a shirt, Right. Let's say a dress shirt. Um, I know exactly what my neck size is and what my arm length is. And uh, and I have all those measurements, but I'm still a bit unsure when I'm ordering, you know, fitted Mm. shirts off of even, you know, the most reputable brand that I've shopped from multiple times. Right. So I think that um, that's the main thing where you have to find a solution to the fit problem. And um, we think that being able to try the product on for fit in person is the most direct and most elegant solution to this problem, right? Mm. Um, I think the second thing is, uh, you know, some people say, well, don't you, you offer 365 day returns, right? So even if it doesn't fit, they can just send it back. They'll get their money back no problem. Well, that's not true because the hassle of returning items is, you know, there's a cost to that. So um, 
so I think those are the, the, you know, that's kind of the primary driver of why we think stores are still relevant. I think the mm -hmm. second thing is that, um, you know, we have very, very high quality products. So um, people sometimes can't believe the quality of the product, you know, especially after they've seen the price points at which we sell at. So um, the store is just a way for us to showcase the product, um, let people touch and feel the fabric, try the product on, um, see how it feels, and um, they can really get a taste for the quality, mm. um, which is really important. And then the last thing is, um, you know, in in Asia, um, as you know, Graham, you know, a lot of people still spend their time in malls and shopping malls. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. It's it's not like the U.S. I was just in, in the States visiting my brother. And we happened to go into a, a shopping mall that I used to go to as, as a kid. And, you know, 30% 30 30 of the stores are, are empty. Wow. Right? Um, and, you know, it's 40, 40 minutes outside of Chicago, uh, really, you know, nice suburban neighborhood. And, 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 and that mall was really, really hurting, right? Mm -hmm. Compare that to, you know, the streets of Bangkok. You go into some of these malls, right? They're packed, right? <laughs> like, there's... <laughs> thousands of people walking around, right? All the shops are full. So I think that um, it's a different type of culture. And um, people don't just go to malls to shop. They go to socialize, they go to watch movies, they go to eat, they go to hang out with their friends and families. So I think you have to be where the people are, right? And that's one of the reasons why um, I think uh, our stores have, have, have worked. Absolutely, so. yeah. I mean, you're sort of putting your finger on something which is fundamental to us as human beings, I mean, we may be digital in, in sort of, you know, our day-to-day -day work and so on, but we're, we're essentially analog, you know, creatures, aren't we? We live in the offline world, and that's where all our sort of meaning is made. So, you know, that especially, I think you find it as well, especially in Asia, like you, you've talked about here in Asia being, you know, that sort of activity in the malls and so on. The difference maybe with the US is that in the US, there's less mobility compared to Asia. I mean, you know, like you take a place like Bangkok, for example, a lot of people have moved to Bangkok from somewhere else, right? And I think when you get that sort of movement, people look for community, don't they? And it just so happens that people find community and that sort of social interaction in retail. You know, it's a place to go, it's a place to hang out, be around other people. You know, in the U.S., it already has all those kind of like existing social infrastructures, doesn't it? But, you know, retail, I mean, this is what Starbucks discovered, really, wasn't it? I mean, if you look at Seattle as an example, Seattle, I think, had the most inbound migration of all U.S. cities in the 90s, which meant a lot of people have moved to Seattle from outside. So you had a lot of young people uprooted from their homes. They moved to Seattle. Where did they go to plug into community? Well, coffee shops, Starbucks. And I think, you know, what, retail does is the similar kind of role in Asia, isn't it? It provides that kind of like social interaction, which you don't necessarily get always online. You know, ultimately we're offline beings, right? So very interesting. I think that's definitely a trend. I mean, even though we talked about digital natives, we have to remember that we sort of live in that offline world as well. Absolutely. Okay. Um, well, I mean, so I wanted to ask you about that, just in terms of the retail side. You mentioned, for example, that you, you know, obviously you started online, you set up the offline store, and you, you mentioned showcasing as well. Sort of folds into that whole idea of, you know, that sort of interaction and so on. So for you, 
a, a retail store is also like a showroom, you know, for the, yeah. the, the goods and products, which uh, that I, I guess compared to a pure offline play, I mean, they, they can't afford to have a showroom really, can they? It has to sell this thing. Whereas you can actually sell stuff online as well. How does that work for you? Do you know like that sort of customer journey? Is there a typical customer journey where, you know, they, co they come into the store, they try on a product, they go home, they check it on your website, they buy it. I mean, how does it normally work? Yeah, uh, I think that the, you know, the typical um, customer um, has seen us on social media, right? So she is, she's seen us on Facebook, on Instagram. Um, she probably knows a little bit about the brand. And um, she knows it's kind of, you know, relevant to her. Um, she'll walk, you know, she'll be hanging out um, at the, the mall that she normally goes to. Um, she sees our store, is instantly interested. Um, within a few, few weeks, if she has our app, she'll be getting um, a notification based on her geolocation using mm. our in-store beacons. That then kind of attracts her to come in. Um, she can browse the products that are available, um, and and um, you know that's that's really kind of the the typical journey, right? But the, the you know I, I don't want to generalize too much because I think the important thing is to build in um, a lot of connections between the physical space and the digital space. Mm. Um, uh, and 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 so many times I've seen folks going you know, with a very, very specific journey in mind, right? And then they kind of build what they think is how it should work. And and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm smart enough now to know that, um, you know, whatever it is that we think is the way people are going to interact with the technology or with the systems, you know, it doesn't always work out perfectly. So we're mm -hmm. trying to just, just create as many connections between the two as possible. So, you know, um, whether it's through the use of beacons or what we call in-store mode, um, which is uh, basically where the app switches to a different uh, format, which is specifically designed to be used while you're shopping in-store, to, you know, allowing for, um, you know, click and collect options, mm. um, really trying to integrate the whole payments experience, and then also figuring out ways to integrate product recommendations across the different channels like all of that's really important so for us improve the the the, the connectivity and then um you know kind of go with the flow and and, and see see where that takes you so. right and what drives that because obviously that whole sort of customer experience is vital to you and like you say there's no sort of like one defined customer journey is it like you say like some e-commerce players may be built around that right so when you improve your app or you improve your stores what's the starting point for pomelo is it you know oh david's had this great idea today let's all get on it or does you know just curious as to how that happens because like you said right at the beginning compared to a traditional retailer you can make many many more iterations and much much faster than a traditional retailer right where does that all come from where's the, sort of the driver for that so it can come from anywhere, right? It can come from me. It can come from, um, you know, somebody in the store. Yeah. Um, it can come from one of our customers. It can come from the marketing team who's looking at the data. It can come from, um, you know, one of our designers who was on holiday in Japan and came across this really cool concept that they want to try to adapt to uh, what we're doing here. Um, and I think the important thing is, again, 
exact same thing. You know, don't predetermine how ideas are generated. And um, I think especially in Asia, sometimes the more junior folks, right, as you know, right, you've, you've lived in Asia, like sometimes they don't feel, you know, all that comfortable kind of voicing their opinions, getting Absolutely. ideas, yeah. right? And that's something that needs to change, yeah. right? Because when, when, when all ideas come from the top, I can guarantee you, you're not getting the best ideas, you know? So um, the important thing is recognize ideas can come from anywhere and try to facilitate the flow of information as much as possible. But that's not an easy thing, you know? It's a mm. cultural, mm. it's a cultural, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a cultural thing. It's, a, it's, it's something that, um, you know, you, you have to really work at, right? And that's mm. why we have, uh, you know, a team specifically focused on, on team culture, um, addressing topics like communication, right? Openness, um, you know, working on people's confidence, Right, um, trying to create spaces where these ideas can 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 um, not only be generated but also shared. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. that's really important. Uh, and the environment where people feel that they, like you say, I mean, it may be obvious to somebody who's brought up in the U.S. that this is okay, you know, freedom of speech and all that kind of thing. But you know, here in Asia, even though we have freedom of speech, people aren't used to voicing their opinion, especially if they're in a group of, especially if it's a woman, you know, in a group, or if it's a younger person in a group. You know, maybe they just keep shut. And that's a shame, isn't it? Because sometimes those are where the most interesting ideas come from. So you have that challenge, don't you, of creating a culture where people can share ideas. Like you say, somebody said, you know, oh, by the way, I walked into this store the other day and I saw they were doing this. I thought that was a great idea. Why can't we use that? You know, exactly. Just, you know, share so, idea. I know because you notice you, you're recruiting interns. Um, I know you've yeah. some posts up as well. I mean, that's kind of a really interesting angle, isn't it? It's a sourcing ideas, whether you want those guys to come up with some wacky ideas. But sometimes, because they're not part of the machine, they do have those kind of insights that we don't have, right? Because we, we're not there, out there on the front line every day. Absolutely. And I think one of the drawbacks to being this, you know, well-oiled machine where everybody's on the same page and you have amazing communication and all that is that you know and i and, and i always say this i think you know what what is your strength is simultaneously your weakness you know mm. so if you've got a team that's super close-knit right like always on the same page right the flip side of it is you know it could be a form of group think absolutely right yeah, yeah. So, you know like and 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 i can and you know there are so many examples where I think in every situation, what is your your organization? What is you as an individual strength? Is simultaneously, you know, in in on on its worst day, your weakness, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that that has been one thing that I have just um, learned through my entrepreneurial, you know, like uh, adventures, right? Which is, uh, you, what what makes you strong is also, you know, your your going to be your potential downfall so you need to try to balance those things how do you do that i mean as david joe Jew, sorry the 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 founder and ceo of pomelo and you, obviously now you you're in the, you have the media spotlight people know who you are you know you're out there you are a fast-growing brand you've obviously you know you've started online moved offline going to five stores and so on how do you, like you say, 
get yourself out of that comfort zone because I mean I'll tell you why I mean I, I recently did an interview with Blake Larson from La La Move and he was saying that like you know the, the challenge is there if you if you grow really fast the challenge is always to fall into the comfort zone because you know it it sort of creeps up on you it's suddenly like you know you're no longer sort of Dave or David you're like Mr. Jew now and then like you know you have your sort of people running around after you it's very comfortable you have your corner office you know, you have your chauffeur and all that sort of thing starts happening. You know, when Blake Larson would say, you know, he would go when, when they expanded into Bangkok with Line, Line Man, I think, he would be at the, the taxi rank handing out business cards to Bangkok taxi drivers, right? And he didn't need to do that. He could get an intern doing it. But he said the reason why he did do it, it keeps him real. It reminds him what's going on. And, you know, it sort of like strips out that kind of comfort. So what do you do yourself, David? What do you, how, how do you sort of force yourself to kind of be mindful of that and keep things, keep things real, if you like, and sort of be in contact with what actually is going on? Yeah, I mean, that's a um, really, really uh, good question. Um, look, I think that Lala Move, I think, is, is an amazing company, right? And... Um, They've grown so quickly, and, and they've they've had a ton of success. And um, you know, in some ways, I think for us, we've always felt like we were uh, a little bit inadequate, right? And and maybe not. Um, so we've always had a chip on our shoulder, right? So mm. it, it, I think that you know, because folks will say, well, what 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 do you and Casey, two guys, know about women's fashion? Right. They say, well, you guys didn't grow up in Southeast Asia. Right. What do you know about the Southeast Asian markets? Right. Um, and I'm working with uh, people that are fundamentally so much better at me at, at certain things than I am mm. that it's, you know, like when, when I'm talking to a fashion photographer. Right. And they've done hundreds, if not thousands of shoots. And that's their area of expertise. Right. I can't be like, look, you're doing this wrong or you should do it this way or, you know, um, I think that's a load of crap, right? Like, I just don't feel mm. like I have the authority to say that. Same thing when it comes to our designers, right? We've got some really talented fashion designers, but I'm not, you know, a fashion design expert, right? So I've always had to learn and I've had to figure things out. And um, it's been really, really humbling, actually, right? Mm. So, uh I don't feel like I'm in the comfort zone at all. So maybe I'm in a little bit of a different place mm. than where some of your other guests are. Uh, every day, I feel like I need to just take in as much information as possible. And um, and um, and yeah, that's that's honestly, Graham, that that's how I feel. Mm. Um, having said that, you know, what 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 can I do? You know, just um, one one thing I think is it's important to be honest and. Uh, and, and vulnerable. So like when people give you feedback that you don't like, right? Like do not overreact, right? Mm. Don't, don't defend your, you know, yourself. Don't defend your ideas. Listen, because, you know, if, if, if you kind of are, you know, leading an organization, you're the CEO or, you know, you're a senior manager, right? Like if you shut down enough ideas, people will stop coming to you with ideas. Yeah, yeah. Stop coming to you with feedback. Right. So, um, even if you think you're 100% right and you know you know everything, right? Like you you, you need to listen. Um, you need to question yourself, and 
you know, Ray Dalio said it the best, right? Mm. Like I was watching some interview. He said, my return skyrocketed, right? When I was 28, I think, or some, something like that. When, when he came to the realization that he could very well be wrong. Mm. So up to the age of 28, he always assumed that he was right. And after that age, he assumed he was wrong. And everything that he did was to try to prove that he was, you know, his assumptions were actually correct or usable. And that's when his returns yeah. went from, you know, average to, you know, top of the line, right? So I think that that is just, uh, you know, it's a great question. It's a, it's a really good question. I think um, it's something I do think about a lot. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, th- I mean, that's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, uh, assuming that you're right in something and then start off with the assumption that you're wrong and try and, you know, test it, see if you're right. I mean, that's why I love what you've done in terms of your strategy. You, you've started online and started building an offline presence. And in many ways, like you say, like the showcasing of products and so on, th- there must be some real value, isn't it, of, of being able to go and walk the shop floor, so to speak. And, you know, being the CEO of, a, I mean, look, look at who you are, you're CEO of, uh, I, I don't know if it still stands, but you, you had one of the largest ever Series B rounds in Thailand, right? Investors include JD, etc. So there's a lot of spotlight on you. But just to go to back to a store and just look and see and feel. I mean, the, the, a lot of people talk about Apple as an example being, you know, a tech company. But if you look at how it was organized in the US, 62% of Apple employees were retail you know, so effectively, Apple's a retail company. You know, working right. in Apple stores, and I think a lot of people focus on technology. But one of the reasons why Apple was so successful is because they could see how people use those products. Like whether it was Grandma coming into the store with the iPad, you know, they understood what was going on. I mean, that was the feedback, oh, absolutely, yeah. everything they needed. Right? That's kind of how they knew. Like exactly. So to be able to connect with that. I don't think. I wonder if you could ever be a pure play e-commerce player in, in fashion and succeed without that kind of like front end. It seems so important to me. Yeah, I think I think that when it comes to certain business models, you know, where maybe you're just a marketplace connecting sellers and buyers, right? Um, it's much more of a technology-based business. But any type of uh, vertically integrated brand, and I would even put Apple in that category, right? They design, they manufacture, they retail. Um, you're absolutely right. Like you just need to be there in the flesh. Mm. And um, when we first opened our store, right, like <laughs> I was so like, you know, it, it completely got me going again. You know, like I kind of, I, I was, um, I was so excited and, and, yeah. and all it was, it was just the physical manifestation of everything we had done online, but seeing it in the flesh, you know, mm-hmm. seeing um, our, you know, lovely customers interacting with the product, um, you know, fielding questions in the store, it was just amazing, right? And um, I was like, wow, this is this is so much fun. That must have been awesome. And yeah, it was great. And and I literally was going every, you know, like, you know, I, I mean, Saturdays and Sundays, I usually try not to work, but you know, on Sundays, I would somehow, some way, end up. In the store, <laughs> just popping <laughs> never, by, yeah, never planned. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, maybe I should just have lunch, in. you know, there, and then, you know, it just turns out to be, you know, five minutes away from the store, and uh, yeah, there's something really, really well, how, how uh, nice about seeing it. Could yeah. you share with us, just, I mean, just in sort of summarizing the sort of journey for you, how, how did that change 
the way you and your team thought about who you were, what you did, was there sort of, I mean, obviously you were excited about it. Was there a noticeable change? Did people think differently? Did it sort of change, like, the connection, not necessarily the connection, but how they thought about their role of what Pomelo was now that you had that stall? Did that sort of click with anybody? I mean, just curious about what sort of impact that had. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it was probably, um, you know, I think in some ways we're, we're just at the, 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 the beginning of that journey, right? Mm. So um, I think different, different teams, different, uh, different team members are, you know, engaged at, at various different levels in, in this new, new, you know, adventure. So some folks are working on it, you know, all the time. Other folks, you know, their job hasn't really changed. You know, the designers are still kind of doing what they were doing before we had the stores. Um, all it is is that they can also see the store. But what you, what what I think is palpable is just this sense of pride. You know, and I think that's really important because you kind of see that you 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 know you've been able to put together this amazing selection of products that change every week, um, super high quality at a price point that's really competitive and. The greatest feeling is when you've got that store and you see folks, you know, looking left, looking right, and then deciding to to walk into your store, right? Mm. And you're like, wow, you know, that, that that's a really cool feeling. So, yeah. um, more than anything, it's just I think um, uh, a small sense of accomplishment, and um, you know, it's just something to get everybody going up in the morning and uh, excited to for the next next leg of the. The, the journey, journey, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I mean, that has a tangible business benefit as well. I mean, it, it has that sort of fuzzy, touchy-feely benefit. But, the, you know, a lot of businesses are always asking, oh, who are my fans? Who are my influencers? And so on. But I, I think one of the areas people overlook is your first fans are your own employees. So, you know, I mean, if you look at, obviously, we talked about Apple as an example. That's where their first fans came from, people who worked for Apple, Starbucks as well, you know, they're the people who start that journey of, you know, getting that story out to the, the wider market, you know, rather than sort of hiring in social media influencers, you know, your most powerful advocates are people who work for Pomelo, right? So, I mean, if they can have that kind of sense of pride and that sense of emotional attachment to the business as well, I mean, that has a real tangible business benefit as well. Yeah. Fantastic. David too. CEO and founder of Pomelo Fashion. It's been fascinating. I mean, we could talk forever about fashion and retail in Asia. And, you know, we're, we're on the cusp of something exciting as well. I mean, you, you talk about that Asia to Asia market, you know, Asians buying Asian fashion. It's a, you know, just, I mean, I should have used this stat at the headline, but it's a $36 trillion market in 2030, that Asian middle class. You know, that's right. twice, twice the size of the US economy today. Just the Asian middle class. It's an amazing right? stat, yeah. I mean, you're right in the middle of it. I mean, that's what's going to happen, apart from those guys in Thailand who sold all those durians last week to Chinese consumers, <laughs> right? All right. Um, they, I think they sold 80,000 in, in a minute or something. To, but it's just, in, insane, yeah, insane numbers. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're, in the, we're in the middle of something very, very exciting, and what you're doing as well is, is right in the right place at the right time. So, yeah, thank you for coming on today and sharing your journey with us, David. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's nice talking to you. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.